0: Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, that popping sound you can hear is corks flying out of vintage French champagne bottles as the results of the United States midterm elections are broadcast to climate cultists gathered around flat screen TVs at the COP27 meeting in Egypt. The election wasn't technically a win for the climate changing global elitists, but in practice, it was. Here was President, Democrat President Joe Biden promising to impose the tyrannical COP 27 agenda onto the American economy just four days before the election. It's gonna become a wind generation. And all they're doing is gonna save them a hell of a lot of money and they're using the same transmission line that transmitted the coal-fired electric on. We're gonna be shutting these plants down all across America. And here he was today saying he doesn't care that three quarters of Americans think he's heading in the wrong direction. He's not going to change a thing.
1: You mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated. And in fact, 75% of voters say the country is heading in the wrong direction, despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024?
0: Nothing. Biden is reportedly now going to fire up Air Force One and pop over to COP27 himself. So he and his climate buddies can work out how they can screw the world's economies even more now that the latest round of bothersome election campaigning is done and dusted. The big win for Biden is that without the Republicans taking large majorities in both houses of Congress, he is less likely to be investigated for corruption the evidence of which is both abundant and compelling. The big win win for the global elitists is that their agenda will not be hindered. What does all this mean for us in Australia? Well, there are a few lessons. First, election integrity matters. There are reasons to believe that some foul play occurred during this midterm election in the US, especially in Maricopa County, Arizona, where counting machines mysteriously malfunctioned and about 17,000 votes were potentially compromised. I'm not saying foul play occurred, but the potential of it creates social divisions that are difficult to heal. Australia must address this issue before we too become routinely embittered by election results with which we disagree. The second lesson is never to underestimate the caliber of the candidates leftists will elect just to block conservatives. It happened with Joe Biden in 2020, who has arguably been the worst US president in history. But hey, at least the orange man got kicked out. And now it's happened again with this bloke. Summer of 1986. I, uh, I think
1: everyone that ever
0: plays uh, football in, in high school
1: was, you
0: know, at a kind
1: of like a trade, a trade out kind of uh, yeah,
0: That is John Fetterman, the man Pennsylvanian Democrats have voted as their representative, if that's the right word for it, in the United States Senate pretty nutty, right? Well, that's just the start of it. Now, leftist commentators are seriously talking about him being presidential material.
2: Fetterman, as a nominee at some point for president, um, I know there's some variables, obviously, <laughs> just but <with> you. <laughs> just a few. But I just, you know, it, it, what he did in the, in the super red, deep red parts of Pennsylvania and the way that he ran ahead of Biden, as you were saying, ran ahead of Trump. I mean, it just makes it makes you wonder about his future.
0: But while leftists vote low, conservatives aim high. As American commentator Ben Shapiro says, Republicans are not looking for politicians with fake credentials. They want candidates who have principles.
1: The House Republicans did not convey a sense that they know what they are doing. There are going to be a few big messages we're going to talk about, about what happened last night. The first message is candidate quality matters. Being perceived as solid in your governance strategy matters. Republicans who had a solid record of governance, Republicans who were perceived as sober and serious, did quite well last night, and everybody else took it directly on the nose.
0: The obvious example here is Ron DeSantis, who won Florida governorship in 2018 by a mere 32,000 votes and was re-elected yesterday by a whopping one and a half million votes. DeSantis has delivered. He defied most of the COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates and has kept the state's economy firing. On top of that, he has sensationally led the culture wars. The woke
2: agenda has caused millions of Americans to leave these jurisdictions for greener pastures. Now this great exodus of Americans, for those folks, Florida, for so many of them, has served as the promised land. We,
1: we have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have
2: respected our taxpayers, and we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never ever surrender to the woke mob.
1: Florida is where woke goes to die.
0: Oh man, what would you give to hear an Australian politician talk like that? It can't be that hard. I mean, we're not that different from Floridians, are we? Besides, the current crop of left-leaning politicians are not as secure as they think. They might reassure each other at events like COP 27 that they rule the world, but as American commentator Joel Kotkin says on the Unheard website today, the midterm's result ironically means that, quote, "'Democrats will be slower to address their weaknesses and may be forced to accept the unpopular Joe Biden as their leader in 2024, and the Democrats will likely be lulled into thinking that Biden's polarising agenda is a vote winner, unquote. Sound familiar? Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's agenda has already proved to be almost as divisive as Biden's. His industrial relations agenda has freaked out even the businesses that backed him during the campaign only six months ago. His proposal for an indigenous voice to parliament is already exacerbating race relations and will continue to do so whether it succeeds or not. His net zero policy will destroy businesses and force disadvantaged Australians to freeze in the dark. And he can't rein in government spending. That's a polarizing agenda just waiting for a DeSantis-like leader to rip it to shreds. There are some reasons to be despondent this week, not least of which is the fact that the world's worst and most megalomaniac leaders are currently gathered in Europe, plotting to destroy economies like ours with their insane plan to phase out the very fuels that made our prosperity and civilization possible. But as DeSantis has shown in Florida, that can change quickly. Labor Prime Minister in Australia, Paul Keating, once said that when you change the government, you change the nation. That always struck me as a bit pretentious. Australia isn't a different country just because Anthony Albanese is Prime Minister. We have always been, and probably always will be, the country of Liberal Party founder, Robert Menzies' forgotten people, the hard-working middle-class families who Menzies called the backbone of the nation. It would take more than a radical environmentalist Labor politician like Albanese to change that. Well, to discuss all that, let's bring in our brilliant American commentator, Ronald Reagan's former executive assistant, Peggy Grandy. Peggy, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me on tonight, Fred. I appreciate it.
0: Peggy, first, can you give us a picture of where things stand now? Have Republicans won a majority in either the House or the Senate yet? And if not, are they likely to?
2: Well, as of this moment, neither of the chambers have been called, although it looks likely that the um, Republicans will take the House. Um, The Senate race in Georgia is going to a runoff, but there's still a few outstanding races in the Senate that could tip the balance of power one way or another, but Georgia is gonna go to a runoff. So we don't really know that. Um, There are a lot of things though that we do know coming out of the midterm elections yesterday. And I would summarize it by saying, we now have confirmation that the United States of America is deeply divided and we're divided over policy. divided over principles and certainly divided over some of the personalities we've seen coming in and out of these contests. But even though there's a lot of, um, you know, finger wagging and I guess heads hanging down low today, um, I feel like both sides of the aisle have things that they can celebrate and things that they maybe wish had turned out differently. But for Republicans in general, I think there's a lot of good news coming out of this election. And even though there was this idea that there might be a red wave, um, we certainly saw a lot of gains in important places that are positioning us really well going into 2024. For instance, in Florida, we see a blueprint of how you can take a state that was formerly very purple, uh, very much a swing state, and turn it not only into a dominant red state, but, for instance, their elections. In 2000, they were the laughingstock of the nation with the hanging chads and the dimpled ballots when it was Bush-Gore. And last night, I think by 10 o'clock, they had all the ballots in and counted and certified and done same with the state of Ohio, also led by a strong Republican Oh, before, Republican before you governor. move
0: on to um, Ohio. They
2: also did a great job with their elections, and they used to have some problems too. So there is hope to turn it around, and I think Ron DeSantis is showing us how to do that.
0: Yeah, before you move on to Ohio and anywhere else, let's just dwell on Florida for a second. I'd say Ron DeSantis is one of the most solidly principled conservative politicians in the world today. Now, he's In four short years, he's turned a narrow margin into, uh, what what did he win? 4.6 million versus 3.1 million, I think it was, votes. It was an absolute trouncing of his Democrat opponent. Now, would you say that it's solid principles and solid values that win elections for conservatives?
2: Well, I would say the principles and the values are the foundation, but I think in Ron DeSantis' case, it was the result. It was what he's actually done. He had people flee to Florida in droves. They picked up about a million citizens during COVID because people wanted one thing, freedom. They didn't want their kids masked. They didn't want their kids out of schools. They didn't wanna be forced to take a vaccine. They didn't want their businesses and their churches shuttered unnecessarily. And so Ron DeSantis, provided freedom. He was a safe space, (laughs) to use the left's term, for all kinds of freedom lovers who came from all over the nation. And he also has gotten results. If you look at, you know, Hurricane Ian that rolled through just a couple of weeks ago, it was a devastating hurricane. It blew out an entire island connecting, I mean, a bridge connecting an island to the mainland. And the engineers, you know, scratched their chins and said, oh, it'll take six months to get this repaired. And he got the military involved. And I think within a couple of days it was up and running. So we're not hearing about these disastrous, sad situations, even though of course there's a lot of recovery with Florida and they actually have another hurricane headed their way. So it's principles, it's policies, it's values. But for the people of Florida, it was results. And they gave him a huge win that he rightfully deserved.
0: Yes, it's interesting. You, you point out the, uh, the principles and the results. They are the two aspects to winning an election. You, firstly, you have to make life easy for your constituents. And then after that, you can go in to fight for in the culture wars, which is ju- almost as important. But you also mentioned that a lot of freedom lovers have moved to Florida. Now, I heard a commentator from America this morning saying you can vote with your feet, and move out of a, a blue state, for example, but that then you forfeit the, the vote you leave behind in that blue state, which is why those states stay blue and why states like Florida are suddenly just a red, a- a wash with red. Is that right?
2: Well, you see that leadership at the top truly does matter. And Ron DeSantis was very clear from the beginning. This is who we are. This is what Florida's future looks like. And if you want to be part of it, join us. We see the converse happen where a lot of people left the blue state of California and went to Arizona. They were not only voting with their feet, but they were bringing their politics with them. And so Arizona, which traditionally has been a little bit more conservative, although has been trending more um, democratic in the last couple of years, we see this very mixed vote happening there now. And they've got a mess on their hands with the elections. And that's the leadership at the top that has really not been as strong as Ron DeSantis has been in Florida. And so it really does matter. People knew exactly what they were going to get when they came to Florida and they came because of it, not in spite of it.
0: Well, I think that lesson applies in Australia, too. Our worst performing state, uh, as far as conservatives like you and I (laughs) are concerned, is Victoria and people have been voting with their feet there as well, which means the hard left government in Victoria is relatively safe. Now, let's move on to election integrity, because that's still the shadow hanging over American politics. There are the usual insinuations of foul play. Even this time, Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate Kari Lake went to vote in a part of Phoenix known to be left-leaning, and she had no problem casting her vote. Yet in other areas of Arizona, counting machines conspicuously broke down, especially as we all know in Maricopa County, which has form in this caper, and the the breakdown potentially, from what I've read, affected 17,000 votes. Now, Peggy, coincidentally, incumbent governor Katie Hobbs refused to debate Kari Lake Yet, she's leading the count. Now, does all that add up to something that smells like a rat, Peggy?
2: Well, to complicate it even further, Katie Hobbs, the gubernatorial candidate for the left, is also the Secretary of State. She's the one responsible for overseeing and certifying elections. Carrie Lake asked her early on in the process to recuse herself from her role as Secretary of State for this particular election and she refused to do so. And so to your point, people want free and fair, safe and secure, transparent elections. They wanna have confidence in their elections and whether or not there was any foul play or this was just something that happened to take place in this manner, It raises the doubt and the question, and we want to eliminate that uncertainty. Now, we have a system of independent states, and we've never wanted to federalize our elections because, in a way, that provides integrity of the vote when each state handles the process a little bit differently, but there has been, in increasing years, a call for perhaps some minimum national standard or some sort of variation of a federalized system that could be embraced or, you know, forced on every state to abide by. Um, But we do see states like Florida who were an embarrassment just a few years ago who are now the gold standard. And so elections can be done correctly. They can be done fairly and transparently and they can be done quickly. It's ridiculous in this day and age that we have to wait days and days and sometimes even longer to get the results of a simple election. If there's nothing going on behind the scenes, we should be able to get a fair and secure result right away.
0: Well, like you said at the top, you know, America, one of the results from this midterm election is that America is more divided than ever and a lack of confidence in the system only exacerbates that division, don't you think?
2: It does, but you know, I'll tell you, a lot of the Republicans are maybe a little disappointed with today, but let me tell you what we're happy about. We are happy that the reign of terror of Nancy Pelosi (laughs) is over. She will not be the majority leader. She will not be Speaker of the House. These endless investigations, these, um, you know, using the power of government to go after private citizens, that ends in January. And so we could not be more delighted to say goodbye to Nancy Pelosi um, in the the new year. And you know, we're really only looking at these supposed losses of Republicans. But let's look at the gains that we had. Types of voters that we picked up, not just in Florida but elsewhere. We picked up Hispanics, we picked up African Americans, we picked up women that maybe had left during the last election. We picked up gains in historically blue states like New York, like Oregon. We flipped house seats in Florida, New York, and Florida, New York, Oregon, California, even. And so we are making gains with our messages and our messengers. And let's remember, we're not the only ones that maybe lost a few things. Look at what Nancy Pelosi lost in addition to her speakership. Let's talk about the media darlings of the Democrat Party that they threw millions and millions of dollars in. Stacey Abrams, who has had two failed governor um two failed races in Georgia has been the media darling for the left. Same with Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who has failed now three times to run for election. And so these have been failed candidates on the left that they've tried to prop up. They've tried to make the voters embrace them. And the voters have utterly... Rejected them by larger margins each time. They also lost in this last election the chairman of the DCCC, the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, um, as well as a member of the January 6th committee. And so these in- endless investigations, the power of the House being used against American citizens, that ends. And so we could not be happier to say goodbye to Nancy Pelosi's reign as Speaker. Um, they took some bad losses yesterday too, and so I think both sides have things that they're celebrating and maybe a few things they're crying about as well.
0: Now, in a second, I want to get onto the rivalry. This is the the, the heavyweight title for uh, presidential uh, Republican <laughs> presidential nomination in twenty twenty four. But first, there's just one anomaly that I'd love you to explain, Peggy, and that is Joe Biden is is unanimously considered. A a, a terrible president, arguably the worst in history. Uh, You know, gas prices are through the roof, inflation's through the roof. you, You were humiliated in Afghanistan. His approval rating is at historical lows. And yet that didn't translate into a thorough drubbing at these midterm elections. Where's that anomaly coming from?
2: Well, there's a complete disconnect, and there has been since the beginning of his presidency. Joe Biden came in by a very slim margin um, that was questioned by many people. And yet he somehow saw it as a mandate. And he has been ruling over America like he was elected king, not president, with his executive orders and just utter disregard for the pain, not showing any empathy for the American people. And in fact, Joe Biden held a um, press conference just this afternoon. And he was asked, you know, with some of the losses that you took as the Democratic Party. Um, what would you do differently looking back on your previous two years, going into the next two years of your presidency? And he looked in the camera and he said, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he has learned nothing. He's not going to pivot or change course. The American people are going to be increasingly frustrated by his inability to empathize with the pain that they're feeling at the pump, in the grocery store, with energy prices, with inflation, the harm and the danger he's caused by having a porous open border, the, the failing schools that he has provided. And he seems to have no sympathy, no empathy, and no remorse for the these things. This is going to come to a big head in the next two years. He cannot stick his head in the sand for the next two years and continue to ignore the American people regardless of what the election outcomes were yesterday.
0: And there are no people waiting in the wings of the Democrat Party to uh, rival him for the Democrat ticket in 2024. So, Whoever gets the Republican candidacy is probably going to win the White House. And the two biggest rivals for that are Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump. Now, DeSantis has just been reelected governor, beating his Democrat rival by, if I'm correct, 4.6 million votes to 3.1. At his victory speech, Peggy, I don't know if you heard this, but his supporters were chanting two more years, which is a funny way of urging him (laughs) to cut short the governorship and just move into the White House in 2024. Now, how are you envisaging this rivalry with Trump to play out? Because the two are pretty antagonistic, aren't they?
2: Well, I think a lot of that the media would like to see them be antagonistic. I think that they've had a very friendly relationship and have great respect and appreciation for each other's leadership. And unlike the Democrats, who, to your point, they're going to have a really hard time making a case for Joe Biden for four more years. They certainly can't make the case for Kamala Harris for any any term ahead. And you look around left and right to the Democrat that he's surrounded with, and they really don't have a bench at all. So on co- by contrast, you look at the Republican Party, and we have any number of probably a dozen candidates that could be potential who would be fantastic. And regardless of who our candidate winds up being, this candidate will be somebody who is strong, optimistic, patriotic, because they stand on truth and they're on the side of freedom. Whoever it's going to be is going to love America and want to make America great again, even if it's Trump or not, Um, they're going to put America first not only domestically, but on the world stage. And so I'm confident that whoever the Republican Party decides to nominate as our candidate for president, that that will be somebody who will make a compelling and inspiring message for why they should lead America forward for the next four or eight years.
0: Yes, but just before you go, Peggy, you've got to admit Trump has lost some of his appeal over the past week or so, like he had a crack at Ronda Sanders, which was a little bit uncool, in my opinion. And the people he nominated in in the midterms have not done particularly well. Now, Donald Trump has a lot to be proud of. I'm a big, big Trump fan. But even I am thinking maybe now is a good time for him to make a dignified exit and just leave the field free to people who are less divisive. What do you think?
2: Well, he certainly has been a kingmaker. He has been the de facto leader of the party, even though he has not been in the arena the past two years. And so I think that regardless of whether he chooses to step into the arena or stay on the sidelines like he is now, he will continue to be a powerful voice of influence. He will be somebody that the Republican Party looks to for guidance and for support. And so it's certainly his decision to make. Um, but ultimately our system of government, we the people decide, we the people tell the government what to do, not the other way around. And so ultimately, it will be up to we the people. But um, we've got some great candidates who may choose or not to step in. And I'm excited to watch it. It's going to definitely be exciting the next two years.
0: Oh, So are we, Peggy. It's going to be a fascinating two years. And we're glad we've got you to help us Cut through all the rubbish and get through to the, the what is actually happening, Peggy. Thanks so much for your time.
2: It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Fred, for having me on.
0: That's former Ronald Reagan assistant and brilliant American political commentator, Peggy Grandy. Well, could this be the end of wokeness as a fashion? Until now, being woke had a certain street cred about it. You and I might not be inclined to wear skinny vegan trousers or t-shirts with a loud environmental slogan printed on it, but people who do are as at home in fashionably woke neighborhoods as Malcolm Turnbull at a Green Party fundraiser. Or so we thought. Woke fashion has suddenly taken a strange twist. If a piece published by the New York Times is any guide, Under the headline, so square it's hip, the Times Hong Kong correspondent declares the cadre look is cool. And by the cadre look, she means a look being rocked by China's style icon himself, Xi Jinping. Quote, on Chinese social media platforms where trendsetters trade fashion tips, young people, mostly men, have been sharing pictures of themselves dressed like their straight-laced middle-aged dads working in Communist Party offices, She calls it mid-rank bureaucrat and says the millions of Chinese fashionistas discussing the look online are doing so either for the irony or they actually like the image of someone with a quote stable career path and respectable lifestyle, a Communist Party version of the preppy look," unquote. Well, will the hipster Brooklyn readers of the New York Times jump on this look? Or is dressing like Xi Jinping too ironic even for them? Meanwhile, in other woke fashion news, the left's favorite new cheese is going out of style. The Canadian company behind Chia, which was originally called Coon, but was forced to rename after woke protesters kicked up a stink, has announced it will shut down its production in Australia at the cost of 75 jobs. Wokesters won't care. They don't work at the factory, and to be honest, they don't eat the mass-produced stuff anyway. Crikey, they don't even buy their cheeses from whatever suburban supermarket sells slabs of cheddar anyway preferring instead to get their imported camemberts and gruyers from inner city providors. Who cares if a factory had to close down? That's a small price to pay for making Australia a less racist place, one brand of cheese at a time. Well, it's Thursday, which means I'm joined as usual by my friend and colleague, Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday on ADH TV. Nick, welcome. Hi, Fred. Now let's talk about the midterm elections in the United States. It's the only story in town this week. It was expected by some people to be a red wave, which is a Republican uh, whitewash, so to speak, but in the end, the red wave was barely a trickle. What's mm. your biggest takeaway from the result?
1: I think that the Democrats managed to scare their own voters and some independent voters into getting out, basically. I think, I have to say, although I thought it was a dreadful campaign by the Democrats, that sort of fear strategy, you know, vote for us or the orange man returns, worked. Yeah, you know, It was It was almost as if it, it, what should have been a referendum on two... Pretty short, appalling years of of uh, a presidency under under Biden turned out to be a referendum on Trump again, and uh, you know I think that's the lesson the Trump the Republicans got to take away. Keep keep him out of the keep him out of the picture, and you might actually win.
0: Yeah, when you say uh, get people out, you mean you know for Australian viewers that what what we're talking about there is that people actually get out and voluntarily vote, unlike in Australia where you are forced to get out and vote. Um, It's a compulsory situation, whereas not so in America, which really does skew the results in some ways. It does, If you're indifferent towards the candidate on your preferred side, then he just won't go out and vote for him or her. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, if you know, that leaves the field open to whoever, that might, whoever the opponent might be, doesn't it?
1: Well, that's right. I think that's the biggest argument in favour of compulsory voting. It, it, it means you don't have to spend, put a lot of effort, the parties don't have to put all the effort into getting people out to the polls. Because what happens is the people that are actually going to make the effort to come out are generally the fanatical ones, right? You know, if yep. you're just a standard, ordinary... Uh, uh american guy uh you know you're not going to be so driven to get out as if you're sort of screaming uh you know intersectional feminist nazi you know you you, you that's the difference <laughs> in the vote so but yeah. that's why that that scare campaign worked i think the democrat yeah, true. scare campaign
0: yeah yeah well they take they, they do take politics to a much higher more extreme level in the united states i want to show you a couple of front pages from the new york post which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, of course. And your opinion here, I think is gonna be quite valuable because as a lot of people know, you used to edit another News Corp newspaper, The Weekend Australian, and you can give us a bit of insight here. Now, here's the first one. This is reporting about Governor Ron DeSantis' re-election in Florida a couple of days ago. I ran a clip of his victory speech earlier and it was pretty stirring stuff. Now, this is clearly an endorsement by Rupert Murdoch, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, I think so, For, without a doubt, I think it is. I mean, Rupert is less directly involved in those sort of decisions than some people imagine. But I, in this case, I think it's, it's, it's Rupert's hometown, essentially, New York. Uh, it's a paper which he loves, uh, and uh, I think he would, he would have, uh, this would reflect the way he's thinking. He's obviously thinking, uh, that the is the away the future is <laughs> it's obvious when you just just by his age alone. So, yeah, I think that 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 would have got up Trump's uh, nose a bit. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of Trump, um, this is where it gets interesting because this is the this is the front page that the Post followed up with the following day. Now, this absolutely <laughs> dumps on Donald Trump for endorsing among other things, dud candidates and for continuing to be a disruptive force in the Republican Party at a time when unity is actually pretty crucial.
1: That's right. Now,
0: now, Nick, tell us, what do you think the background story is here? The
1: the thing about that one is you you cannot, when you're running a popular newspaper like the New York Post, one that's got a broad audience, you cannot go too far, you cannot depart too far from where your readers actually are in terms of where they think. Now, you imagine they'd run that headline or, you know, two years ago, say, before their last presidential campaign, it would have been a disaster for them, I think, because the majority, but the vast majority of Post readers would have been solidly behind Trump. So the fact they're running that now suggests that they know or they've picked up that, there's, that Trump's uh, peaked, his days are over, uh, that, you know, probably, uh, you know, the comments that he made at the weekend, for instance, against uh, DeSantis. Uh, you know, fancy that! I mean, making, criticizing the probably the leading performer in your own team on the on the eve of the of the uh, of, of, of the midterm elections. I mean, it's an act of treachery, really, isn't it? In many ways, and so I think that that would have counted against him. And uh, and the posters picked up that people are saying, okay, on your bike, which would be, I think, a very good thing for the Democrats.
0: Yeah, on your bike or fall off the wall, one of the two. But
1: what, <laughs> what I find
0: is, the, um, is just how quickly this has happened. I mean, only a week ago. I mean, you say if they'd run that two years ago, it, it would have been, the response would have been entirely different. But even a week ago, this was almost inconceivable, don't you
1: think? Yeah, look, I think so. That's probably right. I mean, the, the realisation has come. Midterms has brought that realisation that, uh, that Trumps uh, c- carries an awful lot of baggage, to say the very least. And the, the Democrats have shown that they can successfully run a campaign against his, the, the re-election of Donald Trump. Then the best thing is to do is to get him off the platform, particularly when you've got star performers like uh, Ron DeSantis in the wings. I tell you what, Ron DeSantis is on two dollars sixty on sports bet to be the next uh, the next uh, Republican. Uh, nominee, presidential. Trump's still on $2.20, but I might get a piece of that $2.60 action if I was yeah, you I right think ahead this, of the... I
0: think those odds are only going to go in one direction, Nick, aren't they?
1: I, I think so. I, I wouldn't be backing Kanye West, for instance, at uh, $31 <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh,
0: now, look, polls found that the biggest concern among voters was inflation, But this is this is weird. It was conspicuously absent from most of the campaigning, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was present in some of the Republican campaigning, but even there, you know, it wasn't the issue that they seemed to be focusing on. Uh, You know, certainly at a national level, you didn't pick that up. And you know, Biden, for instance, he gave a press conference shortly after the after the uh, the as the results trickled in, didn't mention inflation once. And when one journalist, I think from, Sky, from uh, Fox News tried to ask him a question, he just shrugged it off and walked out. That was what I, why I thought he was going to do very, very badly, because he was talking about something that most voters did, did not really care about. But he, I think that goes to your point. He actually talked about a boutique issue that got those particular, you know, rabid left uh, woke voters out to the polls or people that had sympathies for that. Uh, even if he lost, say, a lot of the la- la- Latino vote, which he seems to have done. Yeah. That was what got him across the line. Uh, but, you know, I just think it's incredible, isn't it? You look back to Ronald Reagan's time, and this is the point that I make with Amanda Stoker on tomorrow's programme, that, that the, you go back to Ronald Reagan, he was an example for the world to follow how to deal with inflation and the economic downturn in the early 80s. He and Margaret Thatcher set the template that Australia could pick up and follow. And ironically, of course, it was a Labour government that did it here. But where's the template out of America now onto how to manage inflation? You know, you've got Biden saying this is all all Putin's fault. But Reagan was very clear. Inflation doesn't begin in Moscow. It begins in Washington. It's government spending. And he said about uh, pulling in government spending, cutting it back, which is exactly, of course, what a president would be doing now if he wanted to do something serious about curing inflation, which obviously Biden, as we said before, doesn't really care too much about.
0: Yeah, curiously, uh, Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, doesn't seem too concerned about it either. No. My, my biggest takeout from the midterms, which I mentioned in my editorial earlier, and I'd love to get your opinion on it is that there, there seems to be quite a distinct difference between Democrat and Republican voters, which you could cat- otherwise categorize as left and right. The Democrats seem to vote for anyone who blocks a Republican and they aren't, that, that there's, no, no, there's no low that they aren't prepared to stoop to. You know, I, I'm referring of course to uh, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania Whereas Republicans or right-leaning or conservative voters tend to vote or support and get out to vote for, as you put it before, people who they can who who have aspirations and principles. Now, have you have you observed that from the midterms?
1: Yes. Well, I think I think you're showing your own perspective a bit, Fred, and mine for that matter. I think. Uh, I, I made a big effort uh, before writing my last column on Monday on this topic to try and get in the heads of Democrat voters because the whole idea of voting for the party of Joe Biden to me seems totally inexplicable. So what drives them to do it? And there is this great narrative which has been building and running through about the danger of uh, the fascist dictatorship that, you know, the election of a, 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 a Republican uh majority would would hasten uh, they've got this idea in their head that it is the republicans who want to come in and, and end democracy and and introduce some sort of totalitarianism whereas of course from where we sit the biggest threat to our democracy and our liberal values comes from the left i mean they're the ones that are, that acted in such a totalitarian manner that, that drove all that you know mad Dip into totalitarianism during during COVID. So it, I think they generally kind of in their minds that that's that's the narrative that's going around in their head. That that really is. So yeah,
0: well they're projecting though. <laughs> that's what Freud would say. They're just projecting their own behaviour, aren't uh, and they?
1: And also and also just dodging the fact they've got no useful agenda of their own. You know they yeah. they have they have absolutely. Well, I rest pro- my case. Yeah. You know yeah.
0: John Fetterman, they'll they'll just vote for anyone as long as they're not Republican.
1: Yeah, exactly. Don't look yeah. here, look over there at what could be, could happen if you don't vote for us. You know, we're we're the knights in shining armour that are fighting off this big <laughs> dragon. In
0: we're, the, we're the brain damaged stroke victims in a hoodie. Not in their heads, Fred, not in their heads. I don't want to look in there, mate, listen. Now look, um, I mean, if you look at the Republicans who were up in the, you know, who were candidates in this election, I think my theory still holds water. I mean, look at Ron DeSantis in Florida and, for that matter, Brian Kemp in Georgia. They both did very well. Now, they were the they were the two. Oh, and Curry Lake, I should say, in Arizona, uh, who is still struggling to win but was very impressive.
1: They're the She's three. She's my tip for vice president, by the way. I, well, I, I reckon the what year. odds is
0: she paying, nigga?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> No, but my point is that those three were the three most prominent to campaign on actual principles, and they're the three who did the best. That's so, right. So, you know, again, you know, if you want to be Republican, sure, you know, join the party and, and you know, pretend you uh, pretend you believe in the principles, but unless you actually convincingly get those get that message across yeah that you're not going to get the vote out
1: no and take take them on and i think that the, i mean ron Sanders who you mentioned is is the exemplar he's the man the only politician i've spotted in the western world who knows how to take on woke and has got the courage to do it yeah i mean as he said in his speech yesterday Florida is where woke goes to die. <laughs> I
0: used that. Yeah. I used that in my editorial earlier. It yeah. is well, magnificent. I and
1: mean, yeah. that goes to show if you take these people on. The other thing is, I think there is this. What shows up to me, and I'd like to look at the numbers or talk to, uh, to, 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 you know, my my good friend Henry Olson, who studies these things uh, in great detail from his home in Washington, is the polarization. So, you know, like you've got. Florida, as we've said, which is looking, you know, it's just gone from basically what was a, a swing state into a very, very solidly uh, Republican state. Well,
0: one of the things that, well, Nick, one of the things, uh, one of the factors at play there is the freedom lovers who have moved in their droves Mm -hmm. to Florida. Now, people are leaving, freedom lovers are leaving Victoria in their droves, mostly to Queensland, and not finding (laughs) the situation much better there either. Mm. But, I mean, how can, let's extend that Florida factor to Australia. What's the message here for, even at a state level, for the Australian Liberal
1: Party? I don't mean that the the last Liberals in Victoria will will flee, but I don't know where they're going to go to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but they, they, you know, there is this phenomena there that they vote with their, their feet, don't they? And, That's right. But the polarisation is stark, and it's a polarisation, of course, between the big cities there and the, the very centre of those big cities. It's interesting when you look county by county how quickly the Democrat vote drops off. So you Away don't have to from go, the city, yeah. yeah. you don't have to go far north of Manhattan, yeah. for instance, before it starts becoming pretty solid Republican territory. And upstate New York, I think, was one of the big game, one of the areas where the, where the Republicans did quite well. Yeah. So it is this polarisation effect, which we see here too. Um, you know, here you can see it, of course, in the in the so-called teal wave, yeah. you know, oh, the red well. wave. Open the elevator doors and the teal pours out or something yeah. like that.
0: <laughs> Now, let's talk about one of your other interviews from uh, tomorrow night. You are planning to interview A- Adrian Patterson. Now, yeah. he's the former CEO of the Our Atomic Energy Agency, ANSTO. Yeah. What insight are you expecting to get from him tomorrow night, especially about the, the, the country's urgent switch to need to switch to nuclear?
1: Well, what I mean, eight point is that, that uh, you know we had we we've described this. Of course, Kevin Trump famously described climate change as the greatest. Kevin mo- Trump. Kevin Trouble
0: <laughs> Go on, yeah, Kevin. <laughs> Rudd. <laughs> Kevin Rudd. Yes. Why did
1: I say that? Uh, <laughs> Kevin Rudd famously described climate change as the greatest moral challenge of our generation, and he described it also as an economic and environmental challenge, a social challenge, but he missed out the engineering challenge. And uh, Adi Patterson is not only, uh, you know, one of the top nuclear scientists in this in this country. He also has a PhD in engineering, so he gets that bit. You know, we didn't, we 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 seem to be totally underestimated in our dumbed down debate that we've had. Exactly what it takes to go from a hy- economy based on hydrocarbons to one that's, uh, you know, n- not based on hydrocarbons. It is a massive transition. And we've seen it happening, but, you know, still, the government is still, 20 years after this big push for renewables really kicked in in Australia, still trying to persuade us they're cheaper. They're not cheaper, and they're not cheaper because of the engineering challenge. Of course, what goes into them is cheap, right? It's pretty much free. Well, it is free, I suppose. The sun and the wind. Let's not deny it's free. But of course, you've got the enormous problems of intermittency. You've got the problems of, of all the minerals that go into building those windmills and solar panels, which are huge. You've got the problem of transmission because these things are spread out. You, ca- you can't put sun and, and c- you can't put the sun and the wind in a, in, a, in a train truck, in a rail truck, for instance, and ship <laughs> it to some. Power yeah, station four hundred yeah. kilometres down the line. You well, have the, the to transfer it to energy there and then, and therefore you need more transmission lines.
0: As far as I know, the only the closest we've got to any figure for how much this rewiring is going to cost us, is in Western Australia, where I think the state government has put a a, a price tag of three billion on rewiring, getting rid of coal and rewiring the states. Uh, energy
1: grid that's to, a, that's, that, a, that's vast, a lot of money. But it's know. still a vast underestimate. It has to be, Fred. Yeah, yeah, you Just yeah. think of what they've got to do. I mean, the federal government has, has said it's going to commit $20 billion to this rewiring over here, but that's only, they say that they were looking for private investment of something like $100 billion. So they say one hundred twenty. Oh, it's going to be a lot more than that. 20, just work it out. 28,000 mm. kilometres of new transmission lines. That's, yeah. that's, I don't know, go to Perth yeah, and back four or d- five times or something.
0: <laughs> How it, many hospitals it, and schools could that build? You know, oh, it's this just is It's in, insanity. Is just
1: yeah. it, it's a mis... It, it would, and the only reason, the only reason we need all that stuff is because of wind and solar. There's no other reason yeah, exactly. for it. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we fa- need
0: nuclear instead. Now, Nick, we've only got a few minutes left, oh, a few seconds left. Just finally, last week you showed us an astonishing graph correlating the... Increase of renewables, which we've just been talking about in our energy system, with the price of energy that was amazing enough. But this week you've got us another graph. <laughs> this time it shows the record of United Nations chief Antonio Guterres's record of in his previous gig as Prime Minister of Portugal.
1: It's a beauty, isn't it? Oh this is the, mate, look at that! The, the the economy of Portugal under under uh, Antonio Guterres between 1995 and when he when he resigned in 2002 <laughs> it goes from a very healthy economy public along just under 4% down to in, right into recession. Oh. Uh, he he left apparently I looked up the on his resignation speech he said he was he was leaving because he didn't want to see Portugal go into a quagmire. <laughs> this is the man well, who is running the international program on climate change as head of Well, the he's United running Nations.
0: more than that if you ask Al Gore. I saw Al Gore at COP27 this week refer to him as the leader of the world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The bloke's a bureaucrat, for goodness Say sake. Oh God, save us. And he, he's, he's, no, he's no economist, you can tell that actually.
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, he's not. Do you think Chris Bowen is looking at what Guterres did at Portugal and saying, hold my beer?
1: <laughs> I reckon he's looking at him saying, I could do that job. You yeah, know, yeah, it? you could. And, yeah. He, and guess what? I think even Chris Bowie might be a little better at it than he is. Yeah,
0: good. <laughs> Nick Cater, thanks for your time. Good on you, Fred. That's Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday night here on ADH-TV. And just before I go, have a look at this clip from Senate Estimates this week.
1: Um, having a federal
0: government that finally does something about climate change actually is in the interests of farmers. And I've got to tell you, that's what they well, all say well, to me. When as I'm as talking a sixth with generation them. cattle farmer, I can tell you climate change does impact farmers. It's called cool the weather, and yeah, it's been impacting, well, you know, farmers. If you, if you don't Queensland LNP Senator Gerard Rennick has posted it on Facebook saying, quote, I'll be honest, it's not worth watching this clip. It's 16 minutes of excruciating verbal gymnastics about Labor pledging to commit to reduce methane emissions. They have no idea of the cost or what it even means." In fact, it is worth watching because you and I pay for this rubbish. Under the new Labor government, Canberra is becoming more and more bureaucratic and unrepresentative. A conversation like this wouldn't last five seconds in a pub. You'd get laughed out and told to never come back. Thank goodness for people like Senator Rennick and South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who also threw a few hand grenades in estimates this week for holding these bureaucrats to account. Without them, we'd barely know what was even going on in these bloated bureaucracies. Well, that's all from me for this week. Thanks for watching. Don't forget Nick Cater's Battleground and David Flint's Save the Nation tomorrow night here on ADH TV. And I'll see you back here on Monday at 8 p.m. Have a great weekend. Good night.